This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. So a couple of pieces of interesting uh, true crime news this week. The first one, which I thought was a little weird. Have you heard, you remember Suzanne Morphew's case, right? Right. Mm-hmm. And so that's this Colorado case. Um, she's just missing, right? Yeah, she's a missing case. There was a murder charge against her husband, then it got dropped. I noticed that um, CBS did this weird thing where they updated an old article. I don't know if you've ever seen when that happens. Like usually it's because there's some kind of break in the case, but um, they had an article up about her from that. We pulled pretty heavily from, we talked about April 30th, 2022. We were talking about it because sort of times with um, her disappearance the second anniversary, uh, Mother's Day-ish, they updated it on July 1st, 2023, and they said the weirdest thing. They said this past week, a prosecutor working on the case of Suzanne Morphew, a missing mother of two, said in open court that investigators suspect they know the location of her body. She's in a very difficult spot, said Deputy District Attorney Mark Hurlbert. We actually have more than just a feeling, and the sheriff's office is continuing to look for Mrs. Morphew's body. What do they mean by that? It's been... Uh, remember, they talked about like they were going to find her when the snow melted, and there was all this stuff that went on. Well, I think that um, there's probably a whole lot more going on with that case. Remember, there was a DNA hit. Um, yeah, yeah. And the DNA matched, like, a couple of other cases in CODIS. And I, well, I really hope that they have been taking strides to identify it if it wasn't, you know, if it didn't come back as a match to someone in the system, right? Yeah. It was attached to three sexual assaults, by the way. I did verify that after we aired the episode. There were three different sexual assaults that were attached back to that. Right, and so um, again, I I don't know if there's a perpetrate a known perpetrator, but the DNA profile matches matches her case. Uh, I believe it was a um, it was a it was DNA in her vehicle, right on yeah. the glove box or something. Yeah, uh, because again, she she has not been found, and I said just a missing person, and I don't mean that you know that's you know we're just talking uh, technical classifications. Right. And so, but it's not less like, I, I don't want to be thought of as putting her down. I'm just saying like, you know, there is no indication of what happened to her yet. I mean, more than likely something bad happened to her. Otherwise she would have come back. But anyway, so I, I'm thinking maybe they've identified that and they may even be like in discussions, um, you know, Barring that, barring, ha- you know, having discussions with whomever this person is, 
uh, I don't know what they would be going off of. Um, it is interesting that they said it in open court. What was that with regard to? Uh, it, this I don't know exactly. I was trying to track down like what I'm missing here. Um, there's a couple things that have gone on. So I, I have this ongoing conversation, and I think that you probably remember this case. There was a case um, that we covered from a book, and the book was called Seamus Muldoon, and I had talked to the family of a missing person where two missing people went missing on one day in Colorado a long time ago. Right. We were kind of going back and forth earlier this year and they were, um, I don't want to name the family member, but essentially there's a, a family member I talked to in that case. And we sort of talked about, um, this guy, John Furry, we talked about some other cases that don't have as much to do with it. We discussed Suzanne Morphew kind of roundabout because um, somehow someone got a phone call on their side of things where they were looking for an update in the case or something. Um, now, one of the other family members emailed me and they said, hey, there was male DNA that was found in Illinois and Arizona on the Morphew case. And I was just thinking of... Um, John Furry, and um, he's still wanted in Colorado. And I, I actually know where he is. Like I, like I physically know where he he's is. He's in Florida. Yeah, yeah, he's in Florida. Um, yeah, so, no. So we were looking for like interesting connections there, and one of the connections was it looked like John Furry's mom had sold the Morphew's home. Oh, really? Yeah, I thought that was interesting. And so when we were looking at that, um, we didn't put any of this together in the original uh, episode, in the original episodes when we were talking about them. Because um, we were talking about Jack Gordon disappearing. And the reason we were so interested in it is because it looks like on paper, uh, like John... Furry, I think he's junior or the third. He disappeared at the same time. And this is over in uh, Sangre de Cristo Mountains. It's Wait, so he wasn't at his property any longer, but he's not a reported missing person, right? Uh, he's a wanted person now. He's been a wanted person for a while. That's how he came up. Um, I guess uh, that's kind of a funny, um, it's not funny, ha-ha, but it's funny, like, ironic. Uh, it's a roundabout because anybody that's wanted means essentially they would, when they are found, they will be under arrest, right? Um, yeah. And so they are missing to at least some people, right? Um, but he was never reported as missing. Uh, the It was just that sort of based on the circumstances of what all had happened in that case, he, they they wanted to see if he knew where his neighbor was, right? Because his neighbor was reported missing. Yeah. And he just disappeared. Um, but it, now he's wanted just because he didn't register as a sex offender, right? I think it's a little more than that. Like I, I, I kind of jumped ahead there. I, I think he has like an actual warrant for something, but yeah, it's tied well, back to, it, it was a violation of his probation or whatever. Correct. Yeah. I'm, it's coming back to me now, but as far as this, uh, the new case, uh, the new, uh, the missing person 
he, he, there's nothing directly like he's, they haven't determined he was involved or anything like that. They've literally never spoken to him. Right. Because he disappeared. Um, and you're saying his mom may have sold the Morphew house. Yeah. Yeah. So somebody attached to that situation with the same last name in the same family tree. Um, when I pulled it up, I was like, Oh, it's like, someone random but it turns out that it, it looks like it's his mother well huh, i've never seen that before um it it was it's 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 a pretty recent thing that like has popped up in public records but i was looking at it and i was like oh my gosh um and then you know when we talk to like family members sometimes i'll just i'll let them talk a little more than usual because these situations can be stressful for them um particularly with them uh with Jack Gordon's family. And I don't want to like call out who it is or anything. When I message back and forth, there's two people there. And one of them is like, really wants to find Jack Gordon. So we'll get into conversations like that whole hitman situation up in Vermont that we covered where the guy was like found on the side of the road. And we kind of called it bad movie plot. That, that was a nightmare case. Oh right. But that gentleman was local to Jack Gordon and had worked, you know, for the sheriff's department there. So that popped up and we talked about that some. And then this came up uh, this year where we were kind of looking at the CODIS hits uh, in the Suzanne Morris case and I was hoping they would make more information public. Anyways, so there appears to be like something about to happen. In the Suzanne Morphew case. I don't know if that's like, I, I have said that a couple of times and been wrong. Um, I just thought it was weird that CBS updated that article like that. Well, um, did, well, was it, so uh, CBS News, and so it was 48 hours with Peter Van Sant, right? Yes, I don't know. Yeah, it's Van Sant's reporting. Um, I don't know that they, I don't know that they updated like the show or whatever, but. It, there was an original date, which you said, April 30th, 2022. It was on the second anniversary, yeah. Um, and so the story aired on, I guess, 48 hours. I'm not really sure. But, okay, so unless they're, you know, defaulting back to the husband, um, which I don't know. I don't know the context of this. I don't know what they're getting at. But, um I don't, I don't see how they could have, you know, more information unless they're talking to somebody, which it seems like that would have come up, right? Um, I would think so, unless it's just a naturally progressing part of the investigation that has taken place over time. Like, when you start carting, like, um, like if CART were to be involved with the FBI and you're analyzing cell phones, um, like multiple people's cell phones, it can take a really long time to get a map put together. And three years is not even close to the outside of, of what would be like too long for that. Like that could be happening now where they ask last year for some assistance with like additional cell phone data. And that could be what they're acting off of. That's so confusing to me because um, I really just have no idea. Well, I wasn't bringing it up to like make it crazy. I just thought it was interesting the update of that article. It is interesting. Um, I think did it re-air? Do you have any idea? I don't know. 
sometimes they do that. They re-air the show and then they add something or take something away. And this case has had some like dramatic turns, right? Cause she went missing. Her husband was, uh, quite a, wi- quite a while past her husband was charged and then quite a while passed again. And then the charges against him were dropped. Right. Yeah. Um, Oh, you know what they do have going on? Uh, Barry Morton filed a civil, a federal civil rights lawsuit this year. It could be related to that. Well, uh, yeah, that I guess it could be. I mean, but, it could have come out there. Hmm. Yeah, maybe. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. This is such a weird situation. I feel um, terrible for her family, including her husband, if he is not responsible for it. But. Um, I mean, it's so crazy. It, th- that is one of the craziest cases, um, just sort of based on the fact that, like, there was this whole story, right? Yeah. They had it down to, like, you know, you've got Barry Morphew, like, chasing her around in the yard and, like, all There was a weird, spy pen and there was the chipmunk guards. All this weird and- stuff happened. And then all of a sudden there's, like, DNA from a CODIS hit that is in her car and... I can't remember. I think it was also, was it on the bike too? I can't remember. But everything that added up, I was like, oh no, they've messed up, right? Yeah. (laughs) Um, And I hope that they figure it out. Now, now, keep in mind what the prosecutor said could have just as easily come out of his mouth wrong too, right? Yeah. you know, bolstering that we have an idea where her body is, but we can't get to it for whatever reason, I guess because of snow or something. Uh, That's what I thought like was going on in that case. And like ever thaw, I mean, she had to have been put there. So if somebody had access to it in, you know, April or May, May, right. It was mother's day. Yeah. It was mother's day. Okay. So May, they had access to it in May of 2020 to put her body there. Why can't they access it in July, right, of this year? I, I don't know the answer to that. And I don't, you know, I don't really know why they're even, you know, bringing this out as an update. I was just mentioning it because, it, you know, usually I have someone in my life that, like, watches all those shows. It's my, my, it's my mom. And she, like, will tell me, like, hey, did you see... Dateline or 2020 or 48 hours or whatever it was about such and such. And there was an update and I don't like, I don't engage a lot in, um, I have a couple cases that like, if they pop up on there, like I, I watched the rerun of Holly Bobo stuff from some years ago the other day. I don't even know why I was watching it, but I did. Um, but like, I haven't looked at anything recently. Um, as far as the recent episodes to see if they put an update out there, I just, so I was bringing all of this up because I did not know this. And this has been out there forever. This is not news to anyone who's followed that case. Uh, did you know that Barry Morphew was drafted by the Toronto Blue Jays a long time ago? Man, I don't know if I knew that or not. So he was like in line to be a pro baseball player. Now, he didn't end up making it past the minors. There was an injury and a whole bunch of stuff that went on there. But he did, like, have meetings and get drafted. Um, He got scouted and drafted back in, like, the I think it's the mid '80s, like '86 or so. I'm I'm sure plenty of articles. I mean, it doesn't surprise me. Um, 
I, I don't know if that's like relevant or not. I feel like any husband and any wife uh, could potentially, uh, in a moment of anger or passion or whatever, they could kill their spouse, you know. And so I think it's, you know, interesting that he was a pro sports player, but um, it doesn't change, you know. No, it doesn't. No, no, you're right. It doesn't change anything. I just didn't know it. Um, and also that it's Toronto, which is Canadian, which ties us into our next thing that I'm going to talk about. <laughs> that was quite the segue there. Yeah, it was a long, it was a long segue. But segue. No, I mean, like the actual segue that you just made there. That's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot. So this popped up on CBC and has Daniel LeBlanc and um, Dennis Babin's names on them. I don't know if they're the only writers on this, but it's out of Ottawa. I had never heard of this case and it has some very interesting information in here that I wanted to talk to you about, particularly because we're sort of wrapping up some Canadian stuff today and we have a pretty well-known Canadian coming on to join us here in a minute. Okay. This, this title is police finally cracked 1975 cold case. Uh, it's an article from July the 4th, 2023. And what it says is one of Canada's best known cold cases has been cracked with ramifications in Ontario, Quebec, Florida, and Tennessee found dead after being dropped from a bridge on highway 417 between Montreal and Ottawa in 1975. An unidentified woman was known for, a, for decades by a single moniker nation river lady basically meaning she'd been found in the nation river according to information obtained by radio canada the victim has now been identified as jewel partsman langford a longtime resident of tennessee who was 48 at the time of her death her identity was recently uncovered by the opp which is ontario provincial police which also laid a murder charge against Rodney Nichols, a man who had been among Langford's acquaintances in Montreal in the 1970s. Nichols is now 81 and resides in Florida, where he's the subject of an extradition request. Here's the rundown on her case. Langford came from a family of seven in Madison County, Tennessee, where her parents owned a farm. While she was in Canada at the time of her disappearance, Langford had long worked in the fitness industry in Jackson, Tennessee. According to local newspapers there, she and her then-husband, Atlas Langford, had opened a center dedicated to exercise and weight loss called the Imperial Health Spa in 1972. According to a source, Jewel Langford was reported missing in the spring of 1975 to police authorities in Montreal, where she had recently moved. She's believed to have been seen for the last time at the end of April 1975, and police started to look into her disappearance later that May. Montreal police investigated the case, but they never solved it. According to the source, the link was never made between this missing woman in Montreal and the body that was found about 150 kilometers west near Highway 417 in Castleman, Ontario, on May the 3rd, 1975. At the time of her discovery, the woman's decomposed body was wrapped in scraps of cloth, towels, and rags, while her hands and feet were bound with neckties, according to OPP. She could have been thrown into the bridge over the highway where traces of blood were found. For decades, her identity remained a mystery to police. And the police have always referred to her as the Nation River Lady in their public comments. This is where it gets weird for me. 
Robbie Nichols was a well-known rugby player among fans of the sport in Montreal, mainly among the English-speaking community in the western portion of the city. So the differentiating between the French and the English here. Okay, according to documents filed in a courthouse east of Ottawa, he was formally charged with Langford's homicide on September 8, 2022. But OPP never publicly announced the laying of the charge in the case, which was initially subject to a publication ban pending Nichols' return to Canada. The publication ban has since been lifted, but the case has not yet been reported in the media. Nichols currently resides in Hollywood, Florida. He's the subject of an extradition request by Canadian authorities, but he's yet to appear in court in connection with this charge, and he has not entered a plea. Now, CBC tried to reach him at his residence in Florida, but they could not. OPP spokesperson Bill Dixon said he had no further comment on the matter, as did a spokesperson for the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of Florida. The filing of the murder charge in this case came after the OPP decided in the mid-2000s to reopen the cold case. 2017, OPP experts unveiled a three-dimensional clay bust based on the body found in the Nation River in 1975, hoping to generate tips about her identity. However, the breakthrough came from the use of DNA testing and genetic genealogy, which helped OPP to identify the victim. Once they had Langford's name, investigators were able to make significant progress on the case. For years, Langford's unidentified body remained in Canada while a plaque commemorating her disappearance was installed at a cemetery in Jackson, Tennessee. Missing but not forgotten, it read. After Langford was identified, her body was finally brought back to the United States and laid to rest under a new monument that now says, finally home and at peace. Radio Canada made contact with Langford's family, but a spokesperson said they're withholding comment for now at the request of law enforcement. Okay, talk about screwing up a bunch of jurisdictions. It's, um... That's a wild story. It is wild. Now, we have to keep in mind it was 1975. Yeah. Um, and, you know, while we have the internet today and we can find anything we want to know immediately, you know, found unidentified bodies were not as readily apparent, I guess would be the way to put it, uh, for, you know, anybody in 1975. However, you know, I, I'm not really sure why nobody put it together before right? because while it yes it did happen in 1975 um you know the internet has been around for a while now and it seems like maybe she just fell through the cracks as far as like not having anybody specifically looking for her well there's some distance like okay so obviously there's distance between tennessee and montreal Right, and, but she was reported missing. Uh, was she reported in Montreal, I believe? Yes, yeah, she's reported missing in Montreal. Oh, but the body goes closer in, to Ottawa, right? Yeah, it's Ontario, yeah. yeah. And so, you know, there is that is some distance, but it seems like somebody that was, like, dedicated to solving her disappearance probably would have found that, maybe? Well, it's about 700 miles I mean, it, it, so it's multiple things going on. One of the biggest things that's going to be going on in this case is there are significant language barriers in parts of Canada. In, in 1975, you have a very distinct portion of the population 
that is uh, French speaking. And so all of the information that they would get would be in French. Um, and then you have a portion of the population that's English speaking. I'm just saying that from the perspective of it's another barrier between, you know, solving this. Sure. Yeah, no, I, um, I'm glad that they have finally sort of figured it out. It is interesting that they knew exactly who killed her, apparently. I mean, well, they, they knew enough to charge, right? Yeah, they did. Um, and I assume the media band was just based on uh, not wanting to, you know, give the person the opportunity to get away. I don't know if an 81 year old person's going to flee. I, I would say that an 81 year old person would be possibly even more likely to flee because they have the resources and, uh, they know time is ticking and I I, I don't know. I would buy that then. Okay. Yeah. I, I don't know as far as, I don't know why they did what they did, but they did. It does appear that, um, you know, they've made these charges against him. Now we know about them. He's still not in custody, so we don't really know what's going to happen. So I looked at, uh, they they did a clay bust of her uh, before she was identified, right? Yeah. And um, so she doesn't look much like the um, undated photograph that's provided in the article, but there is another picture that does look more like her, right? Uh, if you go down a little bit, it's weird how they did the comparison picture. Uh, do you see what I'm talking about? Yeah, 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 I'm looking at it. Okay, and then where there's a video, that picture does look a lot like the bust, right? Yeah, yeah. the 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 video that they put up with it, um, it just says Jewel Parchman Langford went missing in 1975. It, it'll be in the uh, first CBC dot. CA article that you can find if you just look for um, uh, Jewel Langford or uh, Nixon River Lady. It'll be the top hit. So right. and people can so, look at it. Uh, I assume this is one of those cases that um, it was solved but not adjudicated. Uh, it had gone cold. Uh, somebody knew something or another. And then, you know, somebody. For one reason or another, uh, you know, it could be a multitude of things. Uh, they, you know, open the case back up and they put it together and they, you know, I it, I can't really tell, like, if they immediately just knew, right? Yeah. I, I can't really tell, but I'm glad that they have identified her and I hope she gets justice. So we have an interview today and um, I'm going to switch over and uh, I'm going to put that in now. Um I'm not going to give much of a lead up here because I think we covered it in the interview. Um, so th- this was an interview that we did in the course of uh, the Epona cases and sort of looking at uh, Bobby Jack Fowler and some of the others. So today we have with us from dyingwords.net, uh, Gary Rogers. And Gary, you've had uh, several careers here. You've done a lot of stuff. Um you're an international bestseller for uh, fiction and crime. Yeah. Uh, you, you blog about crime quite a bit and uh, uh, wanted to get into a couple of the more interesting things you've done. Uh, you're a retired Mountie. Tell me how you became a Mountie. 
Well, it's back in the, the 1970s, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police was still quite a respectful force. Uh, and I'm not going to go any further than that about today. But, <laughs> uh, um, you know, I applied just like uh, any other Canadian citizen can do. And I went through the screening process and was accepted. Um, so I went to the National Academy, which is in Regina, Saskatchewan, at the centre of the country. And then you're uh, you're required to do some uniform work just to start off to cut your teeth. So I did a few years in uniform and then uh, was selected for the detective section or serious crime section. And I spent my re- the rest of my uh, RCMP uh, career doing uh, serious crimes investigation, almost all of which were murders. And you decided that you had not had enough of that. So then you went to work for the British Columbia Coroner Services as a death investigator, right? Yeah, well, I had had so much experience in death investigations through through the police force. You know, we covered the, the whole gamut, even you know, from suicides to you know naturals, where we rule out all play, and then to homicides at various levels of, of uh, murder cases. So I had a lot of experience both in investigation and being around uh, dead bodies. So I was actually headhunted by the BC Coroner Service because when the the role that I had as a detective, I worked hand in hand with the coroners, so I was well known. So when I reached pensionable service out of the uh, police force. Um, I took an appointment as a coroner for Vancouver Island. I got to ask, did you ever watch Da Vinci's uh, Inquest? Sort of. I never really got into the police shows. So, um, what's his name? Larry Campbell it was in there. He was an ex-RCMP member. and uh, He's gone on to be a Canadian senator now. So. I think that show is responsible for some of my love of true crime. That's why I asked. Okay. So, uh, we, do I read correctly? Are you also a marksman? Yes, yeah. Part of my duties when I was on the um, the RCMP um, uh, forces uh, was on the what we call emergency uh, emergency response team or ERT, which is the American equivalent of SWAT. So I uh, I started as a as, uh, an assaulter on there and then uh, took off uh, for sniper training. So I I did a fair amount of that. That was a secondary secondment. It wasn't a full time position. So. Whenever we'd have regular practice, monthly practices, and then whenever there's a call out, you'd be, uh, you know, taken away from your regular duties to uh, to do support services for uh, ERT duties. So you went from being a door kicker to being sort of Overwatch with that. As yeah, needed. yeah, yeah. Well, it's the, the marksmen are the ones that get in a position to to be able to to well, we call them neutralize the target. It's a nice way of saying taking them out. From this, you, you clearly have at least two careers there. And mm-hmm. then now you've segued into blogging and writing. I have to ask, like, how was the transition to fiction for you? Uh, difficult because I didn't know anything about fiction writing, so I had to be self-taught. But during the uh, the police force and the coroner service, I did a lot of writing because that's a, most of the job is paperwork, actually, in, in that. So I, everything from... Uh, uh, court briefs to wiretap applications, search warrants, uh, uh, forensic requests and reports. And then with the coroner service, I'd have to write uh, judgments on deaths. So I, I was very proficient with writing. And uh, But the jump into fiction, like that was a whole different ballgame for me. So I uh, I just decided I was going to tackle it. And I spent about a better part of two years on my first uh, novel, which came out. And it did really well. Um, so it's you know it's just learning the mechanics of fiction. Once you get it down, the best thing I ever did was read uh, Stephen King's craft book called On Writing. It's uh, every everybody that writes fiction has got to be familiar with that. Oh yeah. yeah so now I've uh, got about twenty somewhere in the course of twenty publications, and 
we have had about 120,000 uh, ebook downloads and uh, and I think it's 106 different countries. Kobo is, I'm self-published. I didn't go the the traditional publish route. Um, so, uh, you know, you get back what you put into it. So, so uh, yeah, it's been good so far. And uh, it's led me into the film industry now. So that's what I'm doing currently is working on uh, four different film products uh, projects, uh, including one doing the script writing and three of them being a tech advisor to them. Yeah, that's good work. I, um, primarily, I'm a screenwriter by trade. That's what okay. I That's mm-hmm. what I um, largely do, which, you know, I spend a lot of time uh, doctoring other people's stuff right now, um, yeah. coming up on my yeah. first <laughs> my first big sale. And, you know, that I, everybody said it would happen in my 40s, and I didn't believe them. And here we are. And that's how it went for me. Right. Um, uh, so Meg and I have been doing this for coming up on our fourth year, we're literally in our fourth season. Mm-hmm. Um, I noticed going back through uh, your blog work, you covered a lot of serial killers and a lot of sort of infamous cases up there. But I was curious, was there a type of crime that fascinated you most, either from a repulsion perspective or from the perspective of like, I really want to know what happened there. Is there like a, you know, is it murder? Is it finance? Like, you have a yes. thing? Motives. Uh, most of the homicides I was involved with are called smoke, smoking guns because they're, they're not really complicated. Both the victim and the and the uh, perpetrator knew each other, so there's a common denominator, what we call a nexus. Um, so those aren't particularly difficult to to deal with. It's the it's the stranger to stranger ones that uh, that are really tough because you where do you start? Especially when you don't have a body, you just have a missing person. But the you know the circumstances are such that such an unnatural disappearance that the logical assumption is there's foul play and you have to treat it like that. But where do you start? Yeah, I uh, one of the cases that I sort of latched on to that is well known um, from Canada, specifically Western Canada, uh, is the the sort of Project Epana cases, which is not, mm-hmm. you know, one set of cases. It's this whole uh, stack of cases. And you had written about it back in 2019. In fact, you have some of the only information that is kind of specific about some of the suspects and some of the victims. And I, I was just curious if you could tell me, um, like, what you think of the Epana cases and sort of how you decided to cover that. Well, Epana was a was a project name that uh, was given to the to the sort of the aftermath of of this when it was a, a collective uh, task force put together. I was already I think I was out of the police force or I was posted on Vancouver Brown on the camera when uh, when that came out. I was involved in, in the original when it was called the Highway of Tears, and it, uh, it we I don't know how many cases I was involved in either directly or indirectly, and I also know a lot of the investigators. Um, that are involved in these cases. So I've got quite a bit of knowledge of the, the inside as to what's going on with it. And um, they, uh, they started back as early as 1969. It could start to put the same pattern together. They involved uh, high-risk uh, females from high-risk lifestyles or uh, hitchhikers, substance abusers, and they're being picked up uh, along the highway, which is a, a stretch known as the Yellowhead or Highway 16 that runs generally from Prince George to Prince Rupert. And uh, yeah, that's in the uh, north part of British Columbia. And then uh, it was obvious that this expanded, that the modus operandi were, were carrying on and being found in other places. So then it just became called highway murders. Uh, when I wrote the blog post back, I guess it was 2019, 
I had documented 45 different women who were either murdered or had gone missing under similar circumstances. And I also di- documented uh, five different uh, um, offenders who had been convicted of these. So it wasn't like we were having one serial killer that was doing them all. They were too, too spread out in time and in distance. So, the, But the, uh, the common denominator is that these were all vulnerable women that were being victimized. Do you find uh, any racial denominators there as far as First Nations versus Caucasian or more even more First Nations, but not, you know, so disproportionately that we could say that was part of the, the modus operandi of an offender that was only targeting First Nations women. They were just, it was targeting vulnerable women who were, you know, generally lone hitchhikers. And that, uh, yeah, I, I tend to look at that and think more socioeconomic and location geographics. Mm-hmm. Um uh, I like that you sort of come out front with, you know, this is not one serial killer. I think that's, I think that's good and bad for the the case itself. If it was, you know, one person, it'd likely be solved by now. But I, I think people, uh, they sort of build these legends, like you know, you called it the Highway of Tears, and and I know it as Project Ipana and the Highway of Tears. Uh, I think. Um, Mm-hmm. You have unfortunate circumstances that have happened there, uh, and probably a series of serial uh, disappearances and killings. Um, and you sort of highlight that you, you go into a lot of detail in dying words about this. Um, specifically, I, I have a question. Bobby Jack Fowler, mm-hmm. he comes into this mix. What do you think of him? Uh, like, like, being in the mix since he's from the U.S. and uh, he's sort of a, he's sort of an odd duck. Like they don't talk about him down here at all, really. No, um, B- B- Bobby Jack Fowler was not on our radar back then. Uh, although he was responsible for three women in Kamloops, um, Darlington, Moise, and whatever the other lady's name is. Uh, he was done on DNA on those that um, eventually uh, it was collected from. He was convicted in. Uh, 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 Oregon, and he ended up dying in an Oregon prison. I'm not sure where they got his DNA sample from, but somehow they made a con- connection to him, and that the the three remains from Kamloops were handled properly, so that there was uh, an offender's DNA signature to, on them. Uh, but uh, in my my gut, I'd give you a high probability that uh, Fowler was also responsible for the Monica Agnes murder in Terrace, which I was directly involved in investigating. The MO is just too strikingly similar in the time frames. And plus, it's also he was traveling from Alaska into down to the states by way of the uh, called the Highway Tears, the network there, coming into Prince Rupert by boat from Alaska, and then traveling through the Yellowhead Highway, and then working his way down uh, Highway 97 into the Kamloops area, and then going through the Okanagan and into uh, Washington State. So there, you know, there's that's four that can be contributed to him. Three by way positively from DNA. And the Ignis murder is the, there's a, a key piece of evidence that I, I can't discuss on it because it's uh, known really only to the investigators and to the um, the, the offender. But uh, it's so strikingly similar to the other three from Kamloops that you just have to make that connection. And it was Fowler that, uh, that murdered Monica Ignis. Meg, do you have any questions in the E. Pana cases that you want to run through here? Um, I'm curious, you said I I was aware of the DNA connection. And would you say that without like a gigantic leap that you like, was it just the four cases? Did any of the other cases seem like they might be attributable to 
uh, Bobby Jack Fowler? Not likely. The problem with Monica Ignis was her body was see, uh, so decomposed by the time it was found, there just simply wasn't a biological chance of getting a, a DNA uh, off of him unless there was hair and fiber. But back then, the, or, sorry, hair work, uh, fiber doesn't involve DNA. <laughs> um, the, uh, it, it's just that the, there was no sign of DNA coming on the radar back when those cases were investigated. It just happens that the three in Kamloops were relatively fresh and the pathologists were able to take uh, vaginal swabs and identify semen in them. And right. uh, so they, we, were, they were preserved. And so we talk yeah. about a lot how it's amazing um, without knowledge that DNA was coming, right? That we'd be have that ability to test that we are able to solve these cold cases based on it, on some of mm -hmm. them. Some of them, of course, you know, the evidence isn't there, but I, I find it just really interesting that the foresight in collecting everything like was that was collected that we now use and we're able to match i think it's amazing yeah back back then what we were doing was what was called serology work and um when we'd get a semen sample for, uh, at an autopsy um we would revert to blood typing which is it, you can eliminate from blood typing and you can build a, a circumstantial case but it's not it's not positive and 100% conclusive like DNA is. And I, I find where DNA has gone now is, is fantastic that they can take a DNA sample of a, a, at a molecular level at a crime scene and then um, clone it uh, and, and work with the mitochondrial uh, nucleus of the, the DNA mo molecule. And it, it's, it's extremely precise on very small amounts. And then right. it, what's really making headway now is uh, familial DNA sites where their relatives that have posted those, you know, as part of the game is to track your gene genealogy. Well, right. the cops have long time had a, a suspect, you know, in mind, but nothing, no way to prove it, no way to get a DNA sample, even if they're 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 dead. But they'll tap into the relatives, or they'll just simply do a, a scan in the um, genealogical databases and uh, come up with a, a similar that they can say, okay, this person is definitely a relative of the offender. So let's start going through the family tree and seeing who we got here. So yeah, that I love following those cases. Yeah, that's fascinating, and it's it, where now we're reaching into artificial intelligence. There's no telling where that's going to lead in, in crime solving. I, I think yeah. the days are just ahead of us. Uh, just out of a little um, fact, I did the uh, wrote the first DNA search warrant in Canada, and I was involved in the first uh, DNA case that uh, that uh, resulted in a conviction of a murder in Canada. Uh, I did the DNA work on that, and then when I went into the coroner service, I specialized because of my background in police with DNA work to uh, work on historical remains with uh, extracting DNA samples and getting them matched through uh, genealogical uh, uh, tracings. The, I was about to ask you about the artificial intelligence. Do you think that will be used in criminology? Oh, for sure. For sure. I can't quite put my finger on where it is, but I think what it's going to do is to uh, search it for MOs, modus operandi. Talk to any uh, a, um, experienced investigator and put a lot of weight on MOs. You, you, you can't say for sure, but it's sure, sure indicative. So I think that's where AI might might be really good at, at also on profiling. Um, profiling is a science. A lot of the old school uh, investigators wrote uh, uh, psychological profiling off focus focus, but uh, I didn't. I, uh, you know, there's a science to human behavior, right? And yeah. although with uh, sometimes with killers, it's pretty hard to uh, 
nail down what their true motive is or behavior because they do some pretty bizarre things but uh, it's usually self-serving for a gratification of one way or another whether it's a release of anger or sexual thrill or revenge whatever uh, do you remember what uh the first case was that you wrote the dna warrant for that it just fat that subject fascinates me so much Okay, that was a, uh, I'm not going to say the, the victim's name because she's, oh, sure. she's still alive. It was a sexual assault. Uh, Robert, I forget his first name, last, oh, Rodney Camp was the offender. What had happened was she was um, uh, walking down in Nanaimo was where I live in Vancouver Island, straight across from the city of Vancouver. She was uh, uh, walking down a, uh, a dark railroad track and uh, Camp followed her and accosted her and threw, threw down the ground and raped her. And uh, when he, he left, he uh, he just kept sauntering on down the tracks. She, w- she wasn't very far from the police office. She came screaming to the front counter, and I happened to be there. So we activated the police dog and uh, went back to the scene, and uh, the dog tracked him down and found him hiding behind a building. Oh, and so we arrested awesome. him. We, there was so much evidence there. But this is the first time that the DNA had been the legislation for getting a DNA um, sample from a suspect uh, by forcible uh, collection was available. So I went straight out, wrote a warrant out and had it, we had him in custody and that gave us the grounds to take a, a mandatory or a, a non-voluntary sample out of him. Right. And right. It, it matched. She, she had a problem with the identity because it was dark and, and uh, she, uh, she could give us better description of the clothing, his behavior and that than a direct uh, facial identification. So we did sure. that, and then I was involved in the Lucy Tremell murder in Banff, Alberta, where the uh, um, offender uh, Ryan Love was living here in Vancouver Island, and we um, we did a Mr. Big Sting on him and uh, collected his DNA, which he uh, just discarded. So we had a warrant for that as well. So yeah, it was just at the right place at the right time. Right. Right. Yeah. It all that always fascinates me, though. I know that it's really becoming like normal, but. To me, it's this evolution that I guess as I've gotten interested in cases, um, it's right where this like avalanche of DNA stuff is happening. And so I'm just always fascinated by it. Yeah, it's uh, it, the, um, the D- DNA techs that are doing this never speak in, in, a, in a certainty. They give it in probabilities and how they come up with those numbers. I have no idea, but they'll say, well, it's within, you know, the probability is one in seven billion that it's that it is this person. So I think that's a safeguard. And that's how the, the evidence has evolved. And I think that's universal is how they give the the uh, the, the DNA comparison results on. Sure. But we behind the scenes, we know we know that uh, yeah, it's him. It's him. Or you can use DNA for eliminating people too. Sure, right? Because mm-hmm. you can, you can go down a a rabbit hole and it's the wrong one and burn up an awful lot of time and resources when you can get to the bottom of it right away and say no, this is not our suspect. Let's move on. I was going to ask: Do you have a criminal that stands out like in your career that, for whatever reason, like you think of them now and again, and that's you know whether it's they were especially atrocious or the opposite end of that where you can't believe that happened. Is there a, you don't have to name them specifically, but like, is there a case that really stands out as like kind of a, a career maker? Yeah. Let's call this guy, Billy Ray. Now um, this is, it it sounds like it's, it's a fantastic uh, fiction that I made up, but it's absolutely true. Um, They had uh, a lady and I'll keep away from her name. She, she was murdered. 
as she and, and her new boyfriend. Uh, she came into the police office complaining uh, she wanted a, a restraining order against her ex-boyfriend, this Billy Ray. He was stalking her and threatening her, and he cut up her clothes, broke into her house, and did a whole bunch of weird stuff. So I took this really seriously and said, you know, this has got the potential to go really nasty. So um, I went down to, to, to the prosecutor and swore a, uh, a charge against him. Uh, so we had the power to arrest him, and then we went looking for him. So I was in her house and uh, looked at some of the evidence, the cut clothes and whatnot, and there was some of his belongings were there. So anyway, we had uh, her new boyfriend stay with her overnight, and uh, they'd even the, they'd even changed the locks on the doors because he had keys for it. And uh, at three o'clock in the morning, Billy Ray climbed down from the attic with an axe and chopped both of them to death. He was he was in the attic the whole time when I was in the house. Oh wow, that's awful. Yeah, it's spooky. Yeah, I wrote a book called In the Attic about it. It's uh, it, it there's more much more detail than that, but that's what happened. He was up in the attic listening to us the whole time with, his, with an axe. Ah, oh, that's that's awful. crazy. Yeah, no kidding. And he left a trail of evidence behind him, like a bleeding elephant in a in a snowstorm. You know, there was no no doubt of who it was. It's just a matter of finding him, but. Yeah, it gets you. It gets even a little crazier than that. And so you never forget something like that. No, there's no way to forget something like that. <laughs> no. If you could solve one crime or mystery magically and just know what it was, do you know what crime or mystery you would want solved anywhere in the world? Oh, anywhere in the world. Wow. Well, I wouldn't say John Benet Ramsey because I'm quite comfortable with what's that with that behind i wrote a quite an in-depth analysis on the jbr case but uh so i don't think there's anything left for that let me see who would i which crime would i like to have solved and it's not the kennedy assassination because i'm well convinced that oswald did it acting alone so it can go past that one um, i was gonna leave that alone I, I heard that was something that you were into so i was gonna leave yeah, oswald out of this one of the more knowledgeable people on the kennedy case and and because I've got the background for not not just the the criminology, but also the the the, the ballistics. Because I'm, I'm very knowledgeable about firearms, so I, and I know what happened in the Kennedy case. It's uh, it's actually quite straightforward. But um, the um, let's see, not great unsolved mysteries. Let me just file that in the back of my head. We'll move on to something else. We'll, we'll, we'll come back around to that. Say, okay, yeah. this one. No worries at all. Most, most of the ones that I've written on. Are ones that have been solved, and uh, or you have well, a pretty distinct I, I know, theory. <laughs> yeah, I would like to know what happened to the missing Malaysia air flight. That where it is. Oh, that's a good one. That's a yeah, really wrote, good one. I wrote a, quite an in depth on on the missing Malaysia air flight, and uh, there's no no doubt to me that the uh, the captain uh, went sideways on it. But where is the aircraft today? Be, be nice to put some closure to that. I, I would agree with that one. I remember, mm -hmm. uh, I think the way that you wrote about that was like, is it a mass murder, right? Was that the framing yeah. of the blog? Okay, I remember that now yeah. that you say that. I must have gone through a lot of my posts on there. There's a lot of stuff on that site. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm personal. Like, so we're not subscribed as a podcast, but I'm subscribed personally. Um, oh, okay. So I, I, I get updates on, on your books and stuff. I, I have a list. Um, but, and I was excited to, to have you on here just to, to chat since we were sort of covering the Epona cases. We're covering... Yeah. The Highway of Tears, and then we're covering the Ghost of Highway 20 down in the U.S., which is sort of same time frame, sort of. Mm -hmm. um, but but I had wanted I had wanted to bring you on, and I'm I'm hoping to to 
bring you back on at some point. Um, um, Let me ask you this purpose in retirement. (laughs) That's that's where I was headed. Um, (laughs) So you talked a little bit about doing some film stuff. Is that going to, you think that'll be like the consulting and writing? Will that be the next part of your career since you've already had three or four other careers? Yeah, that's, that's what I'm planning. The, the big one that I've taken on now, I've been two years into it and it's, uh, um, it's got a, a right of first refusal with a, a big dog in the industry. It starts with N and ends with X. So, um, I've, uh, I'm, I'm taking that one seriously. It's called City of Danger. It involves a, a concept that I had in the back of my mind for, for quite some time about, I, I like the old 1920s the detective stuff. In fact, if I could show you around my, my studio here, I've got uh, one section of it done up as a 1920s private detective office. It's a bit of a motivator. That's awesome. So the city of danger, the log line is uh, uh, a modern city in dystopian crisis enlists two uh, private detectives from its 1920s past for an impossible task um, to spend street justice and restore social order. So what it, it is, is the male and female detectives from the 1920s are transported uh, 100 years into the future. And what's behind this whole thing is artificial intelligence. And that's where we're going with that. So their whole thing is to try to restore order in the city, which, uh, make it out of chaos. So it's their it's their art that they go through and the comparisons between the 1920s and the 2020s. So it's uh, it's taken on quite a life of its own. It's got some really big, big interest in it. That sounds, that sounds amazing. sounds very interesting. Yeah. 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 Yeah, just go to and when you go back to my my website, uh, just go up to the top bar and and click on City of Danger and the the, uh, the opening scene from the pilot episode is on there plus the graphics for it. Cool, I'll check that out. So um, we've got a few minutes left. I wanted to ask you a couple of things about how what's the best way people can support you in terms of buying stuff, reading stuff. Is it just dying words? Like, is that the easiest place to send them? Yeah, that's my, my that's my hub is dyingwords.net. It's it's been in existence for around 10 years and it's got around 450 posts on and I've got links to my, my books and um, uh, that's it. Just, I, I'm not in the position where I have to make money from, from this any, anymore, but it's yeah. nice. You know, there's income comes in from it, but that's not my purpose. It It's to be able to create something. That's, that's really what this is all about. Understand things like the last Saturday's post I did uh, on Hank Williams senior, what, uh, what the true cause of his death. I don't know if you read that, but uh, I haven't I haven't now. read it yet, so don't spoil it for me. It's up okay, on my it's up on my iPad, but I haven't finished it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. The biggest one that, that I've got for openings and reads has been John Benet Ramsey because it's such a famous case. And I, of course I get the nut bars you know, challenge me. I just you send them through the spam filter and move on. But yeah. Um, it's if you if you're going to stick your head up, you're going to get a couple of swipes out of it. That's just how the business is. Yeah, I I get people contacting me all the time about the Zodiac case down in oh, yeah, right. and I, and I like I have never referenced that case anywhere. Um, I was on a like a another podcast. I like, they were interviewing me about stuff we do here, and they were talking about the Zodiac killer, but I know nothing about the Zodiac killer. But like for it, some reason, I get all these messages about it. Well, Zodiac. Well, um, um. My uh, writer acquaintance, uh, Kim McGrath, has made a very good case of who the Zodiac Killer is. And she's quite convincing. She did her homework. She's a, a psychologist as well and, uh, and a police profiler. And she makes a good case that uh, I think it's fine to 
BTK. There's too many coincidences. He moved from California to, I guess it was Colorado where he was operating in, and he reinvented himself. But she makes a damn good argument that it's him. Dennis Rader, that's the name. Yeah. Kim McGrath is her name. She, she, uh, she's very convincing in her work. That, uh, well, I'm that going to have to check that out. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's all I've got for today. I just wanted to have you on. Um, oh, sure. you, do you have a book coming out or a most recent book out? Well, the most would... recent book out, I, I, I'm fascinated by AI, by artificial intelligence. And when chat came out, I said, okay, what's this thing all about? So I, I took chat and I sat down with it and interviewed it as if it was the world's biggest fiction writing guru. And I recorded it and I just put it out as an ebook. And it's called uh, Open AI Chat GPT, um, a fiction writer talk shop with a bot. So if you want to into fiction writing, if you want to see what chat has to say about the, the craft and the, and the business of self-publishing, it, it's amazing what that thing does. Yeah, I saw that post. That's definitely one. I'm going to, I'm going to link all this in our show notes for people to check out. Um, but mainly I'm going to send them to, to Dime Words. Yeah, that, Dime Words. Um, that way they can find you there. And, uh, we'll probably, uh, th- you've got some interesting stuff in here that we'll probably bring you back on around the holidays. And we'll, we may chat with you about, uh, John Binet. Um, cause I yeah. have some questions for you. I'm not going to like lump them all in here today, but I, you, uh, you've got some interesting stuff there and you were talking about that being like a top, uh, top hit for you. I can see why. Um, yeah, it's had, it's had th- thousands, ten, tens of thousands of reads. Yeah. Well, it's, it's a fascinating, you know, it's a, it's a whodunit, right? But oh yeah. Yeah. As far as I'm concerned, I know whodunit, but anyway. So it's a holiday whodunit. And that's, that's, I, something about that makes people, yeah. you know, really want to know what's going on. Yeah. Meg, so, do you have anything else for Gary? Um, I I don't, but it was so it was so nice to talk with you today. Yeah, anytime. I've uh, I like sharing what I've I've got kind of a unique perspective because of my experiences, and you know, I refer to uh, when somebody says, "So, what did you do for your career?" and I said, uh, "I said, well, I was the guy that for over three decades nobody wanted an appointment with." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I believe yeah. that. So I've probably done. I don't know, 2,500 autopsies, something in that range, you know, like not personally doing them, but, uh, you know, I, I was hands-on. So sure. I was in, in the morgue with it. There's a, a myth that the pathologists are the ones that actually do the cutting. That's not true. It's the autopsy techs, the, the morgue attendants are the ones who do the dissection. Sometimes uh, they just phone upstairs and tell the pathologist what they found, found and that's good enough, you know, so, um, but I, to the de- death cases that I was in between the police and the coroner service, I figure someplace around maybe 2,500. You know, that's we had, a lot of ones where we had 11 in one day. That's a, kind of a mass thing. It was a, all from a from a plane crash. That's awful. Yeah, but you can go through them pretty quick. Sure. And then some are the some of the forensic ones. That's a whole different story. Right. They, they can take a couple of days to go through and run a forensic autopsy. Um, what did you think of talking to Gary? Um, it was really interesting. I like him. I think he's so funny. Um, I want to bring him back on. Uh, probably, I, I was thinking maybe um, at Christmas time, there's a couple things I thought we could uh, bring him on for uh, and talk to him about. It's very nice to have him as a friend of the show. Um, and again, his uh, dyingwords.net is his blog. You guys can go and uh, check that out. You can uh, check out some of the other things he's written. And I will include that in the show notes. And... Mm-hmm. And people can check that out. 
Thank you so much for joining us today. We'll see you next time. glad that we got Gary Rogers on here for an episode. What's wild about this is we have like these outtakes on different episodes where we don't end up using them. And I'm going to use one today as an outro. It's really long. It's a whole different case that we were using to intro Gary. So it'll seem like it doesn't make sense because I pulled it out of the audio and dropped other things in there. But I'm going to run it because it's a really interesting case. It's going to be the world's longest outro, but... I hope that people stick around, and I'm also kind of using it to gauge some of the analytics that we use. But this is the the cut version of uh, what got thrown out of this episode. I don't see these cases that often. uh, And I thought, so, so today we have, uh, we have an interview guest on that sort of ties into what we've been covering. It's just somebody I really wanted to kind of talk to and, and get on the show. I like him uh, very much. And I don't see cases where someone who's been missing for a very long time or whatever has been found to be alive and well to some degree. Now, I will say this guy's passed away now. But this was particularly interesting to me because I I think people know by now I, I really enjoy kind of fugitive stories, especially escapees who like just vanish. And I've never read anything like this before, heard anything like this before. Have you? No, um, it, it's pretty fascinating. So I have uh, I have a couple of different versions of this story that I'm going to pull from here, but uh, I'm going to start with something from the Omaha World Herald, and I you know it was this was really weird. I went through the whole thing thinking that there would be um, a byline, and I I see the name Henry Cords on the article, but it's not set up like a, a traditional byline, um, but it is Henry C O R D E S who appears to be credited for this. And I assumed, like, uh, maybe it's in the image somewhere, and, like, when I pulled the version I pulled, I I just didn't catch it. Uh, But here's here's what the article says. It says, uh, Leslie Arnold Mystery Solved. Man who died in Australia was enigmatic Nebraska fugitive. When asked about his origin story, John Damon always told his family he was an orphan from Chicago, which is true in a way. In 1958, the 16-year-old Omaha boy indeed became an orphan when he shot his parents to death. Nine years later, after he sawed through prison bars and escaped the Nebraska State Penitentiary, the fugitive did flee to Chicago to launch his new life. But back in those days, Damon was known by a different name, William Leslie Arnold. And after more than half a century, the mystery of Leslie Arnold has been solved. U.S. Marshals in Omaha recently, through DNA evidence, determined a career salesman under the alias John Damon, who died in Australia in 2010, was actually Arnold, the long-lost convicted killer, who escaped the state penitentiary in 1967 and vanished without a trace. 
The 67-year-old Arnold left behind a wife and two children in Australia, as well as three surviving stepdaughters from a previous marriage here in the United States, all of whom were oblivious to his dark, secretive past. It's a total shock, said Arnold's stepdaughter, Kelly, who, like her sisters, requested that her last name not be used, citing privacy concerns. It's mind-blowing. The jaw-dropping revelation has his family rethinking the entirety of the life of the man they thought they knew. Where they previously saw a loner who didn't keep a lot of friends and valued his privacy, they now see a man who, of necessity, mostly kept a low profile. In fact, Arnold, who was known as a talented saxophone player both at Omaha's Central High School and in prison, went so far to hide his true identity late in life that even after his own son took up the instrument, the father never once touched it. That's part of the mystery of my dad, his son said. As a function of his past, he had to live his life in a certain way. The resolution of the case comes five years after the World Herald published The Mystery of Leslie Arnold, which is a series of stories that detail the captivating saga. The smart but troubled teen shocked Omaha in 1958 by killing his mother and father, burying the bodies in their backyard, and then continuing to attend school for two weeks before the grim crimes were discovered. Sentenced to life in prison, the boy served for almost a decade as a model prisoner. Prison officials felt he was likely within just a few years of an official pardon for his youthful crimes and ultimate release. But in July 1967, the enigmatic Arnold shocked everyone again. The then 24-year-old man pulled off an escape worthy of a movie script and disappeared. He's still the last man to successfully escape the Nebraska State Prison. Now the final chapters of Arnold's astounding story can be written. Through numerous interviews with family and friends and others, public records and information from law enforcement sources, the World Herald has pieced together an extensive picture of Arnold's 43-year life as a fugitive. While Arnold eventually died a half a world away, for the first 25 years, he was essentially hiding out in plain sight right here in America. Just four months after the escape, he married a divorced mother of four, a woman who was waiting tables at the same restaurant on Chicago's South Side, where he landed a job as a cook. With the incident cover provided by his John Damon alias and Big New Family, Arnold became an independent traveling salesman. After two years in Chicago, the family moved to Cincinnati in 1969, and two years later, they settled in Miami. Estranged from his wife, Arnold then moved to Los Angeles around 1977, divorced, remarried, and fathered his own children relatively late in life, while in his late 40s. Then in the 1990s, something appeared to spook Arnold. He cut ties to his stepdaughters, had a distinctive mole removed from his face, and moved with his second family overseas. First, they went to New Zealand in 1992, and then on to Australia in 1997. Living in Australia, Arnold passed away at home on August 6, 2010, due to complications from blood clots, ending his life a free man. His son described Arnold as a charismatic and patriotic man who loved science and technology, and as a doting father who raised his kids with a love of music. My dad's legacy is a lot more than the initial crime and escape, his son said. His stepdaughters have a more mixed memory of the man who stepped in as their father for a decade. They're grateful for the smart and hardworking man who rescued them from a life in the projects. They also describe their stepfather as demanding and strict, 
ironically similar to how Arnold had described his own treatment at the hands of his mother. A lot of things that didn't make sense or were uncomfortable now make sense. We all need to work our way through it, and that's what we're doing. Besides his resourcefulness, there was another key to Arnold's success in avoiding recapture. It appears that he never seriously ran afoul of the law again. Beyond some normal traffic stops, authorities have found no criminal record under the Damon name, such slip-ups often becoming the downfall of fugitives. Innumerable questions remain surrounding Arnold and his life. And with his death, the answers to many of those may never be known. That includes why an immigration card bearing Arnold's real name was issued to someone in Brazil a year and a half after his escape, a fact first revealed by the World Herald in its 2017 series on Arnold. Did Arnold or a stand-in travel to Brazil under his real name in an effort to throw U.S. authorities off his trail? This might be plausible, especially given that we know Arnold by the time that time had already established his new John Damon identity. Even though it's solved, it's still a mystery, said Deputy U.S. Marshal Matt Westover, the Omaha-based law enforcement officer who cracked the 55-year-old cold case. You want to fill in the other pieces of the puzzle, he said. It's a puzzle that began with a stunning crime in Omaha in the fall of 1958. On a crisp October afternoon, the boyish-faced William Leslie Arnold betrayed little emotion as he led Omaha police into the backyard of his home at 66th Street and Poppleton Avenue. He pointed to a spot beneath a lilac bush, and that's where he told them they should dig. A uniformed cop had turned up only a few shovelfuls of black dirt before he revealed the first sign of the truth, a human hand. The bodies of the boy's parents, Opal and William Arnold, were soon unearthed. To believe the news reports from 1958, Arnold shot his parents to death simply because they wouldn't let him use the family car to take his girlfriend on a date. But digging deeper into the case, decades later, the World Herald revealed there was a lot more going on in the Arnold's neighborhood home. Arnold played in the marching band, the dance band, and ROTC band at Central. He was a good student. He was also high-strung and carried some deep anger and resentments, most of those feelings revolving around his relationship with his 40-year-old mother. Leslie Arnold would later tell psychiatrists that his mother ruled over him in a domineering and arbitrary fashion. It seemed there was nothing he could do to satisfy her, and others observed similar things. It seemed to me that his mother was excessively and compulsively hard on him, said his childhood friend, Jim Child. Arnold would later tell evaluators there may have been underlying reasons for his mother's erratic behavior. She was twice hospitalized after, quote, nervous breakdowns, end quote, the common term at the time for episodes of mental illness. A big source of recent conflict between mother and son had been Leslie's girlfriend, a North High student named Crystal, who Leslie had been dating for a year. His mother was dead set against the relationship, objecting to the girl's working class upbringing. The only thing I knew was she did not approve of me, and not just me, my whole family. She told the World Herald in an interview, we weren't good enough for her son. As one psychiatrist who later examined Arnold later put it, the way Leslie's mother treated the boy and her attempts to keep him from his girlfriend represented a challenge to the boy's very manhood. The emasculating influence of mother dominance, plus being treated as a child rather than a growing young man, would only serve to produce hidden resentments and antagonism towards his parents, which could be classified as a smoldering volcano, wrote the psychiatrist. On September 27, 1958, that volcano blew. Leslie and his mother were having another bitter argument over his plans to go to the drive-in with Crystal. That's when he would later tell detectives, 
I got this crazy idea in my head. He retrieved the 22 caliber rifle from his parents' closet. He later said he just wanted to show his mom he was serious about going out with his girlfriend. When his mother laughed at him and told him to put the gun away, he said that he suddenly raised the weapon and he pulled the trigger. The boy then stood over his mother and fired five more shots into her chest. I can't explain it. She seemed in pain, and I didn't want to hurt her anymore, but I just kept shooting, he later told investigators. It was right at that moment, he said, that his father came through the door. Enraged at the sight of his wife's body, William Arnold went after the boy. After ducking a wild swing, Leslie shot his father six times, too. He fell dead in the dining room beside his wife. Arnold later said that he curled up on the couch and he cried, not knowing what to do. Within an hour, he had hatched a plan. He told everyone his parents had suddenly left town to find a senile grandfather who had wandered off in Wyoming. He arranged for his brother to stay with the family. The boy then felt the need to see his girlfriend, taking her to the drive-in after all. Arnold later described it as a horrible night, the boy tortured by his guilty conscience. And the next night, under the cover of darkness, he dragged both of his parents' bodies to the backyard, and he buried them. For the next two weeks, Arnold settled into a routine, opening his father's downtown business before going to school. But a week into his ruse, he was startled to return home to find his grandfather, the same one he had been telling people was missing. Not satisfied with the boy's evasive answers, his family, five days later, went to the police. On Saturday morning, October the 11th, he was taken in for questioning and copped to the crimes. Months later, he pleaded guilty to two counts of second-degree murder, and he was sentenced to life in the state penitentiary. While Arnold faced at least 10 years of incarceration at the time, the state's pardons board commonly commuted the life sentences of killers to a set number of years, allowing them to be released on parole. Prison officials found the boy industrious and earnest, and the model prisoner also pursued his love of music by playing in the prison band. We all just kind of felt like he would ultimately make parole and make a success out of himself, said one prison official. But at some point, Arnold soured on prison life, and in 1967, he conspired with fellow convicted killer James Harding to break out of the trustee dorm, a secure facility within prison grounds for lower-risk inmates who were nearing possible release. Arnold and Harding convinced the recent parolee to toss a tube containing saw blades and a pair of rubber masks into the prison yard, where the conspiring cons retrieved it. Arnold and Harding then hid away inside the music practice room, sawed through the bars that covered a window, holding them in place with chewing gum. On the appointed night of July 14, 1967, they used the rubber mask and fashioned dummies in their beds to confuse the overnight guards. They then made their way down to the music room, jumped out of the window, scrambled over a barbed wire fence, and ran to a clearing where the new parolee waited in a car. He drove the escapees to Omaha, where Arnold's childhood friend got them clothes, money, and tickets on a 3 a.m. bus bound for Chicago. The escape was so clean, they were already halfway to Chicago by the time they were discovered missing. Harding was recaptured less than a year after the escape and later paroled, told the World Herald in an exclusive interview before his 2008 death that the last time he saw Arnold was just days after they landed in Chicago. Arnold informed Harding he already found a job as a cook in a restaurant in a Polish neighborhood, and he had also hooked up with a girl, an older woman. I got mine, Arnold told Harding the last time they spoke. You go get yours. 
Kelly still remembers her first impression of the slender, fresh-faced young man her mother brought home to dinner one night in 1967. He didn't eat much, like one pea and a little mashed potatoes. He seemed nice enough, and he didn't talk much. He didn't talk about himself at all. Kelly's mother, Jean Bouvier, had recently met this new young man named John Damon at David's, a restaurant at 31st and South Halstead in Chicago. The divorced mother of four worked there as a waitress. Damon had just taken a job there as a line cook, a skill that he'd actually picked up in prison. David's was known for ice cream sundaes, and it was indeed located in a heavily Polish neighborhood. The couple's courtship became a quick one. Arnold soon after moved in, and then Cook County records show that Damon married Jean in a civil ceremony on November 27, 1967, just 134 days after Arnold had escaped. Her daughters don't remember a proposal or a ceremony or even a ring. Kelly said, the next thing I knew, they were married. At 34, Jean was older than Arnold, who was 25. She was an attractive woman, too. The Chicago native was a little glamorous, with a trim figure, a blonde beehive hairdo, and her nails and makeup done just so. She also possessed a sassy personality and enjoyed the company of men. It's easy to see why she'd catch the eye of a young man who'd been locked up since age 16. But both also gained much from their hasty union. For Jean, a survivor who'd always found a way, it meant stability for her family. After meeting Arnold, the the new family moved from the public housing projects near the restaurant where they'd been living to a much nicer place on West Race Avenue. For Arnold, the marriage provided instant cover, helping him quickly blend into society. He overnight went from a Nebraska prison escapee to the married father of four daughters, ages 14, 12, 9, and 5. I told my mom he was either ignorant or brave to marry a woman with four girls, said Sean, the then 12-year-old. Now I think John took it on because he needed it. What a perfect cover. The girls were told by their mother that their new father had grown up in an orphanage. But Deb, the oldest of the girls, said she now has to wonder whether her mother, who died in 2000, knew something about Arnold's past more than she ever let on. It was a tough go for a single mom, and I could see why she would want someone who could support us. Maybe she had an inkling of what was going on, but we'll never know. Along with his new family, another key to Arnold establishing his new identity was an official-looking but forged Illinois birth certificate he had somehow obtained under his chosen John Damon alias. It listed his birth year as 1941 rather than 1942, and his mother as Jean Stanley, which was actually Jean's maiden name. The fake document enabled him to get official identification during his life, like driver's licenses and social security card. So within weeks of his escape, Arnold has a new name, a new life, and the tools to support himself. As he settles into married life, Arnold and his bride shared some things in common, including a love of movies and music. He bought himself a saxophone, sitting in the corner of the living room on Race Avenue to play. He sometimes would have a drummer or guitar player that would come over and play with him. They would jam out and all kinds of stuff, Deb said. Sean even remembered him playing a few public gigs years later when they lived in Miami, producing an early 1970s family picture of a tuxedo-clad Arnold holding a sax. But overall, Arnold's stepdaughter said it was rare for their father to socialize with anyone outside of the home. He just kept to himself. One time, their mother had invited a bunch of neighbors over to throw Arnold a surprise birthday party. Kelly said that he threw a fit. He hated it. 
At some point early, Arnold transitioned occupations from cook to salesman. He worked as an independent sales rep, a middleman between distributors and potential customers. His stepdaughters recall him selling lots of different things over the years. He sold linens, vending machines, chemicals, even musical instruments. He worked hard, traveling all week often. He would always wear a suit and tie and look clean cut. He was a strong communicator and speaker, and he seemed good at his job and making good money. His sales work also may have been why the family, in 1969, moved to Cincinnati. There they settled into a tidy, two-story, wood-frame house with a yard of their own and a piano in the dining room. For the girls, it was the first time in their lives they'd lived in a real house, not to mention Arnold's first since Poppleton Avenue in Omaha. In Chicago, we were poor from the other side of the tracks. Here was his savior, Deb said, who pulled us out of this rough life. To Deb, Sean, and Kelly, Dawn, the youngest, died in 1998. It seemed that their stepfather was always working. But today, they hold some nice memories of Arnold, the only man they ever called, Dad. They appreciate the love of music he instilled in them, particularly for jazz. Deb remembers him for piano. Kelly fondly remembers him taking her to a Henry Mancini concert. But the sisters also describe Arnold as demanding, strict, and unforgiving, much like they now understand him to have been treated by his own mother. Before he left on business, he would give them lists of chores they needed to perform while he was gone. They were required to get jobs by the age of 13. He didn't tolerate back talk, and given that the girls possessed their mother's spunky spirit, they often did. If they failed to do as they were told, they were put on restriction, their stepfather's word for being grounded. They recalled it sometimes being grounded for a month or more. The term sounds like it was rooted in Arnold's penitentiary days. In fact, the girl's daily life under their father had a regimental quality much akin to prison life, because it's what he knew. Basically, we got the brunt of him being in a penitentiary and being bullied by his mom, Sean said. It definitely could have been done with a different way of discipline. But say la vie, it's in the past, Deb said. He was very, very difficult sometimes and very hard on us. There are some other intriguing stories from the family's early life together. Deb recalled that one night on Race Avenue, they were awakened by Arnold moaning and crying like he was having a nightmare. Their mother explained it was a result of their father once having contracted malaria. Now, Deb wonders if he was tormented by memories of killing his parents. In 1971, the family moved on to Miami under circumstances both unusual and suspicious. Kelly recalls their parents took a vacation trip to the Bahamas by way of Miami. Their mother never came back to Cincinnati, instead staying behind to find a new home, while Arnold came back to move the family. Deb was a senior in high school and decided not to move. One day, not long after that, an FBI agent flashed a badge at the door and asked about John Damon. Deb said she told him she didn't know where he was, as her mother had earlier instructed her. FBI records from the time offer no evidence that the agency ever linked Damon and Arnold. Deb still has no idea what that visit was about. In Miami, the creative Arnold gave the living room of the family's new home a 1970s-style makeover with a plaster mosaic with colorful inlaid smoke mirrors on the walls and bright two-tone carpet with a slate walking path on the floor. He also installed a stereo system. I remember when he first put it up, he put me in the middle of it, and we were listening to Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, said Sean. He was very excited about that. He made himself over, too, wearing his hair a bit longer and donning leisure suits. After about three or four years in Miami, the restless Arnold started talking about moving the family again, this time to Costa Rica. He said it was due to the country's low cost of living, but now his family has to wonder whether there were other motives at work. 
Regardless, his family told him they had no desire to move, and Arnold instead convinced his wife to buy some land in Hawaii during a trip to the islands with the idea they might one day settle there. But Jean remained opposed to moving, which may have been a factor in their subsequent breakup. That was the deal breaker, Deborah called. It wasn't obvious at first, but Arnold's absences for his work became longer and more frequent. After a while, he just stopped coming home on the weekends. By 1977, with most of the girls now out of the house, Arnold had settled into an apartment in the Los Angeles suburb of Burbank. Serving as his own lawyer on July 27, 1977, just days after the 10th anniversary of his prison escape, Arnold filed for divorce. Jean did not contest or respond to it, and it was granted in February of 1978. The parting was not amicable. They had privately agreed to split the family's assets out of the legal system, and she felt that he did not keep his end of the bargain. In response, Jean mailed Arnold's saxophone out to him in California after she smashed it. She later summed up her ex this way. He was a great provider, but a lousy husband. Even after the divorce, Arnold would maintain contact with the girls, calling and visiting from time to time. He attended Deb's graduation from nursing school and sent a birth announcement when his own daughter was born. Then in 1992, the 50-year-old Arnold asked to meet with him personally. The girls had earlier heard he was again talking about leaving the country, so they knew that this might be goodbye. As the 34-year-old Kelly sat with her stepdad in a booth at a Red Lobster in Miami, she offered him some parenting advice. Now that you have your own daughter, she's going to need to hear she's a good kid now and then instead of just do this and do that, she bluntly told him. She was later proud of herself for telling him that. They were among the last words that he would ever hear from her. He never contacted any of the girls ever again. Looking back now, it's clear that Leslie Arnold was again making a clean break from his past, embarking on what would become the third and final act of his life. John Damon was a big Clint Eastwood fan, but as his son thinks back on it now, he's amazed about the Eastwood movie his dad had the family sit down to watch at home one evening about two decades ago. Escape from Alcatraz. The 1979 prison breakout film even features a scene where the escapees fashion dummies to make their bunks appear occupied. In hindsight, it's so strange to think what was going through his mind when we watched that. The son has recently pondered countless such questions. Arnold's son was willing to share his father's life story, but only on condition that neither he, his mother, nor sister, nor the town in Australia where they lived be identified. The World Herald agreed to the conditions to obtain critical insights into the last years of Arnold's life that would not otherwise be possible. A few years after his divorce, Arnold began dating the woman that would become his second wife, a foreign exchange student in Los Angeles. The two got married in 1983, and in 1986, Arnold, at age 44, became a biological father for the first time with the birth of a baby girl. His son would be born five years later. The family shared a number of Los Angeles area addresses, including Long Beach, Torrance, and Glendale, as Arnold continued his work in sales. By then, he had, he had incorporated his own sales company called Demonico, taken from his alias last name. Then, in 1992, Arnold rather suddenly decided he and his family needed to leave the country. After the riots in Los Angeles in the wake of the Rodney King police beating, Arnold told his family that the country had changed and the United States or at least Los Angeles, was not going to be a good place to raise a family. His wife was firmly opposed to the move, but went along. Arnold's family now believes he may have had different motives for leaving the country. Indeed, 
With the 1990s rise of the internet, law enforcement now had much better tools to track people's movement and share digital fingerprints, driver's license photos, and other information. The planned move was not the only twist, suggesting Arnold had grown concerned about recapture. Around that time, he had a doctor remove a mole from his cheek. The mole had been a distinctive feature on Arnold's face since boyhood, always mentioned in the FBI postings about the fugitive. He told his family he was tired of cutting it while shaving. Throw in the fact that he said goodbye to his stepdaughters at that time and abruptly cut off all future contact and ties, there's a reason to believe that something had spooked Arnold. The family first flew to New Zealand and lived as Kiwis for five years before moving on to Australia. Even while living overseas, Arnold for nearly a decade continued to, at times, travel back to the United States for work. But it seemed the work that had been long been the center of his life became secondary once Arnold had children of his own. He often expressed to his children how profoundly their births had changed them, giving him new purpose, he'd tell them, altering his perspective on what was important and teaching a life lesson. His son and daughter knew him as a loving, doting, and lighthearted dad who wanted the best for them, making it all the more surprising when they learned later how he had parented his stepdaughters. Like his first family, Arnold's second was raised amidst his love of music. His son developed his own passion for music, having no doubt he chose to take up the saxophone due to his father's influence. But while Arnold told his son he used to play the saxophone, he never picked up his son's instruments to display that skill. In fact, his son only once in his life saw Arnold display any musical talent at all. As his son struggled one day to play a complicated jazz riff on the piano, his dad sat down on the bench beside him and said, why don't you try it this way? And then proceeded to play the riff perfectly. His son never thought much about it at the time, miffed and feeling his father had showed him up. Now he sees it as evidence his father was suppressing, his musical talent. Yet another sign, Arnold was concealing his past. He repeated to his second family the story of growing up in an orphanage. When pressed for details, he said it had been a difficult life he didn't want to revisit, and that he felt neither the need nor desire to learn any more about his birth parents. Arnold would sometimes anchor his life to bits of truth. For example, he once told his family he had worked as a dental technician. He didn't mention that he had done it in prison. A lot of what we knew were told were partial truths, his son said. He did not open up, and I did not ask questions. In the end, Arnold took his secrets to his grave. Arnold had been on an extended business trip to California at the time of the 9-11 terrorist attacks. He returned to Australia and did not travel overseas after that, doing most of his sales work online and by phone. Not long afterward, he began dealing with blood clots. The condition may have related to a heart attack he had suffered in the late 1990s or even his frequent long sits during air travel. He was diagnosed with deep vein thrombosis, and as the clotting issues became more severe, his general health rapidly declined, and it reached the point that he had difficulty breathing frequently. On August 6, 2010, he collapsed at home and died. His obituary said he was 69, but in reality, it was just days short of his 68th birthday. If Arnold had spent the 43 years looking over his shoulder, he was finally now at peace. Okay, so that's like the main part of the story. There's one more piece of this, but I wanted to ask you. That's a lot. That's like a lot of stuff. It's pretty crazy. I've never read anything like this. Have you? I haven't. Um, I had never heard of this dude. And, you know, I feel like as time went on, you know, his... His story sort of fell by the wayside, right? It really did. Well, so 
the way the, the, have you read like all of it at this point like the whole thing about him oh yeah mm-hmm. okay so John Damon's son you know who's Arnold's alias he's 19 years old when his dad dies and then right after the funeral the son decided that he wanted to learn more about like what was going on in his dad's world so in 2018 he even went to Chicago uh, but the thing was he couldn't find the landmarks in his dad's life. Specifically, he couldn't find the orphanage that his father had spoken about. So he goes to the vital records department in Chicago and Illinois, and he shows officials dad's birth certificate. And they look at it and he, they're like, that's not real. So after his death, his son, like in 2000, I think it's 2018. His, his son finds out that like something is wrong with the story. So he goes to Chicago for these answers. He starts to find out, you know, things aren't lining up and ends up raising more questions. But he ends up being able to reach out to the stepdaughters. So the first Damon family that like he had raised these four girls and he starts to try and find out what the surviving daughters know. They also, as far as like him being, born and raised and finding other family, they only know the orphan story. So then the guy in 2022 decides that he's, this, this is the son, John Damon's son. He decides he's going to have his own DNA analyzed. So he posts the results on a public DNA registry. And he's hoping that someone from his father's biological family had also put their DNA into this um, registry. So the idea is he wants to connect with cousins, aunts, uncles, grandparents, whoever's still alive from his dad's family. And he said in the article, they don't put any warning out there that maybe you won't like what you find. So in August, the son is excited to learn that the registry has made a DNA match. It's a close match. But he soon begins communicating not with a close relative of his father, but with Matt Westerver, the deputy U.S. Marshal from Omaha. So the way that Westerver cracks this case um, is coming out in a story in the World Herald. Uh, I think it's going to be, it may be out by the time this series goes, but if you want to check that part out, uh, you can go look at it. This is familial DNA registry heaven for some people. Um, but this is the the details of how in 2023 they close uh, Arnold's case. Um, and uh, Westover and the reporter that are doing this, they go through and they talk to all the family again. Um, there's some there's some more to this story. It, it would take me hours and hours to tell you like all of the little pieces they did. Uh, there's some great pictures, and the reason I chose to use the, the Omaha Herald stuff here is there's some great pictures of like him throughout his life. This is fascinating to me. Um, this is what, what about it do you think is fascinating to you? Uh, so this kid kills his parents in like a fit of rage, and like for all intents and purposes, he is like a version of the loser killer that you describe. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like somebody that just goes too far and would take it back in a second. Well, yeah, I mean, he is a little bit different because of his age at the time. I wouldn't necessarily call him a loser, but he was certainly a young man who couldn't control himself, right? Impulsive. Yeah, like like there's something well, about that part. 
without the gun being there, um, he wouldn't have killed his parents. Correct. And so, you know, while people kill people with guns, um, I'm not blaming the gun itself, but this is a situation where, like, the fact that there was a gun there that he could pull the trigger on, it was the deciding factor here. If he had had, you know, a chance to cool down, um, he he wouldn't have killed them, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, it's It's sort of sad, and... On the other hand, uh, while he did murder both of his parents, he went on to live this entire life after he escaped from prison, like, without ever hurting anybody ever again. And that's the biggest part that tells me that it was just a, it it was just a, he lost control. Yeah. So I think that part is also fascinating to me, that he never commits another crime. Um, right. And, you know, he would take it back if he could. Oh, absolutely he would. And, like, there's something about – okay, so when you, like, really live that life, never commit another crime – and, like, you have to go see this kid in the, in the pictures. He is so young. He's like, very young. In fact, when they're, they're – when he's taking them out to where he buried his parents, he is handcuffed to two detectives. Yeah. That picture yeah. is just—I mean—it's crazy to think about that. I think. Yeah, this is. Um, if you're into reading like these long fugitive stories, there's the there's a previous series in here from when they didn't know this part of the information. So it's from 2017. It's six years old, but it's on the same site, and this will definitely be in the show notes this week because I think people should read about this. Right, and so the way that the DNA um, works itself out is. When they both ended up having it, um, the marshal had the uncle, right, uh, which would be uh, Les, Les's younger brother, Jimmy, I believe was his name. Right. Um, he, he asked for permission. It was all done consensually uh, to basically uh, to test the DNA, get a profile, and upload it. Now, um, I've talked about this, and this is sort of, the reason I'm mentioning it is because it's sort of what I have in mind when I've said on previous episodes that, like, one day we're going to be able to know if these some of the missing persons cases, if these people lived on from this state, this type of uh, comparison, right? And sure enough, uh, this sh- illustrates that because there was a, I believe it was probably around a 25% match. And that indicates it's a because you if it was a father son it would be a fifty percent match fifty ish right and so a twenty five percent match is going to get you on up to like a sibling which they knew he wasn't his sibling right. or um, a uh, uncle right and it so they knew it had hit very close and the marshal was kind of banking on uh, closing this case through DNA, hoping that um, that less that less had gone on with his life and had uh, you know had kids, and then eventually one of those kids or one of those grandkids was going to be curious about their DNA, right? And so it was a really smart move, um, and it ended up solving all kinds of things. Now, I did think to myself when the kid, when his son said, 
um, we, we don't know his son's name, but when he said, like, they don't put a warning label on it, I, I was like, you know, I feel for this guy, but, like, you have to think to yourself, there's a reason my dad didn't tell me this stuff. Yeah, but, like, I, I mean, I don't know that I would ever jump to that. Maybe. Maybe. I mean, uh, I think I you would. I think you would know something sinister was going on. I, I wouldn't jump to that. But, like, no. Well, see, that's the thing. If I have somebody in my life and, like, they choose not to tell me stuff, I don't go looking. Like, Well, I, I think I this is see- after the fact, too. Oh, sure. Yeah, no. I mean, his dad had died and he wanted more information. Which you absolutely can do, um, but if you've spent your uh, entire life with somebody and, you know, you don't know uh, whatever it is you don't know, I have to think to myself, well, there's probably a reason they didn't tell me. Um, but, you know, whatever. People can do whatever they want. And clearly, I mean, this this turned his entire world upside down, I'm sure, Right. I mean, absolutely. This would be for all of those children that are still alive. So you got three, four, you got five kids. And I think the wife survived them. So you got, you know, six, you got six people and countless others who have sort of been involved in this all in the way that we don't even know about that met John Damon, having no idea that it was Leslie Arnold. I think that um, it was pretty ingenious for him to marry a woman that had uh, four older, I mean, they weren't little kids at the time. I don't know how old they were, but they were nine, 12 and 14. Okay. And so she had four kids. Like, so he basically had a ready-made family, right? And so, I mean, that was pretty smart. I have to say, like, as far as, as far as him not um, being, you know, suspected of being this uh, fugitive, right? Now, I looked when I when I was researching for us to talk about this on on the show. I did see where, like, in some circles, like this was a big deal. Like his uh, never surfacing anywhere um, had bothered people, right? I guess yeah, that kept it really did. It. Yeah, and uh, you know, I don't know what anyone's particular connection would be to uh but you know for some reason they knew about it and this was so far this was so far before my time that it's never even come up right and so to me um now they had picked out different people that could possibly be this guy and I thought that was really interesting. I didn't know any of the people, but the way that they were talking about it, it seemed like these people at least must know who they're talking about, right? And so it never would have occurred to anybody to think that this man with his wife and four daughters was, you know, the same guy that like three months earlier had a, he had escaped from jail. He had escaped from prison and uh, for killing both of his parents, Right. Right. Um, and so it, it was smart. Now, I, I feel like it would be interested to, interesting to know why he suddenly had the mole removed and moved to New Zealand and then Australia. Like, did something happen? Um, but, you know, I guess we won't ever know. But to me, he it illustrates he did live in 
sort of a prison, right? Um, Because he was never free from. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he would have been paroled at some point uh, if he had not broken out of prison, but I guess it was just taking too long. Um, And so, you know, to me, when somebody loses control and they make a mistake, uh, which is what I feel like this was. I I feel like that's like a whole different thing than when people are like, you know, killers, right? Um, people who kill people like serial killers do. It's completely different. Yeah. Um, and it shows you that like everybody has it in them. Everybody's capable of doing something bad if the right set of like circumstances comes together, right? It, everybody right. can have that pressure cooker moment where they just explode. And, you know, that's what happened here when, uh, he ba- he shot his mother out of the uh, out of control factor, and then he shot his father because he panicked because he came in right after he shot his mother, right? Yeah. And so I I mean I kudos to him for you know going on to live the life that he always wanted. Uh, it's not great that he escaped from the penitentiary and nobody ever found him. He, he didn't do anything else bad, right? So, I mean, I have, it, it's kind of a, I can't really say like, you know, that he should be punished for that. I mean, obviously he's dead, but it sounds like he may have, um, he died pretty young, right? So the stress might have played a factor in that. I, I think the stress would play a factor in all of it. And I think, I think towards the end of his life, things were, it, it was probably far more stressful than we realized just from, uh, what we're looking at here. Uh, I do find, you know, like I said, there's multiple facets to this. I find fascinating. Um, you, do you want, do you have more to say on this guy? I was going to say, can you imagine um, like being in a situation where you couldn't tell like your children? I That would drive me a little crazy. I think it would be really hard to not be able to like elaborate on, you know what, but he wouldn't want to involve them. Right. 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 Because as soon as they know, then, you know, they could in theory be held accountable for knowing. Right. Yeah. Um, And so he really couldn't tell anybody anything. Um, And the Brazil thing, I don't know where that comes into play, but I imagine uh, wherever, (laughs) wherever somebody picked up that identity, um, (laughs) because they said that his, was used right. And somebody sold it to him. That's what I was thinking. Like they sw- they switched it out, right? And they probably like live to regret that because the last thing you want to do is get the identity of like an escaped fugitive. No kidding. Like, <laughs> how do you even explain what's going on there? You know? Yeah, I stole an ID. It was the wrong one. I mean, yeah, <laughs> it would just be really bad. But my first thought was, well, like whoever gave him his new identity took his old one and they resold it, right? Oh, but that's an interesting idea. That's what I thought, like immediately, because while um, you know he was attached and like you know not only the name, but like he, there were mugshot pictures of him and everything. Somebody else with that same very same name that doesn't look anything like the guy, it doesn't have as much of a chance 
as, you know, causing problems for the person who has it as their new identity, right? But they needed a new identity, which means their old identity is immediately going to be blown, which makes me think that whoever provided that identity might have been like, not like in love with the idea of this person getting away with anything. Well, right. And so, but I don't know that having put a bad new identity on somebody who has a bad old identity, I don't know that at that time it would have lined up like where yeah. people would have realized immediately what was going on, especially what was it, Brazil? Yeah. It was, so the idea is that his, he basically, this false identity shows up in Brazil and, and it's purportedly William Leslie Arnold. It's not him, but someone's using the idea down there. ID. Wait a second. Were they using the uh, Leslie Arnold? Yes. Not the John Damon, right? Correct. They're yeah, using, so yeah, that's they're using, why I thought that. I was like, yeah, they gave they gave Leslie Ar- Arnold um, John Damon, and then they gave some other poor poor guy um, the Leslie Ar- Arnold uh, identity. So. I don't have I don't have much else on this guy. I don't think I could I could probably talk about him for days. But I will say this: a lot of the stuff about him behind the paywall. If you can find one of the free trials, it's totally worth it at the Omaha Herald. And there's at least one other paywall that I uh, I went behind to read about this. It's fascinating. Um, I'm not you know sponsored by any of those places. I'm just saying if you want like a really good in depth read, they have pages and pages and pages of this story along the way. And one of the things that Meg was saying that I think applies to the writing here is you can go back and read where they captured in time, like in 2017, that's six years before they know this is all going to go down. They're talking about wanting to catch the only guy who got away from um, uh, this particular prison. And I, I thought that was awesome. Well, and I do think that these types of cases are few and far between. Um, oh, Absolutely. Uh, and to have it closed, like that's a huge deal because this this is like a no question um, situation where you've got the brother's DNA matching the son's DNA in the uncle relationship, right? And so they get to take that off their um, plate. Now, if he had never done his DNA, it would just remain a mystery forever, right? Because he was dead already. It's not like yeah. he's going to show back up somewhere. I think we're going to see a lot of interesting stories out of relatives trying to like reconnect with other people. I think, I think we'll, this won't be the only one. I think, I think you're right. They'll be rare, but I think we'll see some very interesting mysteries solved by public DNA registries and people sort of just looking for, you know, kind of, clues about the past i i find all of that part of it to be like this really cool you know uh sort of unknown frontier in front of us and i think that'll be well it's it's actually happening uh it's just kind of a slow go because it is sort of this thing that we have to evolve to right some faster than others um and it's really funny. I was having a conversation with somebody um, about, and I was, it, there's, it's somebody I'm related to. And I was explaining uh, like our heritage and they said, well, how did you get all the old, the people from the olden days? how did you get all their DNA? 
And I was like, well, no, that's not how this works, right? I was like, so you have your DNA heritage, right? And that tracks you to a certain point. But like when you do like a family tree, you're looking at other records. There, There's not like, you know, the people from the olden days DNA being checked against yours. <laughs> but the person was so confused, but I got what they were saying. And so I was like, no, this is how it works. It's a combination of knowing your DNA and then following records, right? Yeah, it's a lot of record following. Um, and so it was just really funny. But I, I agree that um, a lot of uh, interesting things are going to come from uh, DNA, especially as it just becomes more and more uh, readily available and more and more intricate in what it can uh, show and provide, right? Yeah. Um, I think that uh, I'm, I just, I'm so fascinated by all of it. Um, and this was, this, I feel like would be the most shocking outcome, like from the perspective of this child wanting to know more about his father and submitting DNA in hopes of finding a relative. I think it's up there. I think there are other things that might be potentially more shocking, like where you find out that like you're not related to your family at all. Well, is that really more shocking than finding out like your dad escaped from prison? I, I guess it's just a personal preference. Well, I, I think I think it's kind of like if if I had to like throw out some top fives, it would be like finding out you're related to somebody really famous and important in history, someone uh, really infamous in history. Um, finding out you're not related to anybody that you thought you've been related, even though no one has told you. And I think that uh, like fugitives or like people who are infamous that aren't liked for whatever reason, that comes in in that top five, I think. I feel like right now on the cusp of uh, where science is versus like reality, I feel like people about our age are like really the last people who could end up in situations where like parents would tell would not tell their kids that they were adopted, like in hopes of thinking they were just like part of the family, right? Yeah. Because they would know like at a certain point, not too long after people our age, right? Um, like there's paternity tests and all kinds of stuff, right? I mean, I don't remember it being a thing when I was a kid, but like it doesn't seem like very long after that that it was absolutely a thing and you wouldn't want to take the chance of, because I feel like it would be worse to find out you're lied to than it would be to find out you're not actually blood related to, to your family. So it's summertime and we're, we're prepping for a new series on um, different serial killers that we are, have been working on this year. We've, we've been recording for a while on, on these new series, but the outro today is um, the official wrap up to the Void series, and I thought I would end on a song that had another kind of anomaly going on. Uh, uh, my <laughs> my partner is a huge, she was a huge Grateful Dead fan, and uh, the last tour for Dead & Company, which is sort of like what's left over uh, of the Grateful Dead in terms of like touring concerts, and John Mayer is attached to that group. And the weirdest thing happened with the, the series of shows they did out at uh, Folsom, uh, Folsom Field. 
Dave Matthews joined them on stage, so I thought I would include uh, part of the live audio from that to sort of wrap up the Void episodes, mark this space and time.
just like so many